Chapter 10 of Dog Watches at Sea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dog Watches at Sea by Stanton H. King. Chapter 10 A Hot Ship The first day out was spent in securing every movable thing on deck, stowing away hawsers, and cleaning up the ship from the wretched condition in which the stevedores had placed her during her stay in port. That evening there was not much choice for the mates in making up the watches, for every man forward had proved himself a competent seaman. Portuguese Joe, a native of Peru, a man almost as round as a ball, was the only small one amongst them. The others were strong, well-built, robust fellows. These sixteen men were representatives of half the globe. For besides Portuguese Joe, there were two Norwegians, one Hollander, a Swede, one Frenchman, three Germans, two each from England, Ireland, and Scotland, and Chris, a native of Denmark. In selecting the watches, the mate had given an equal number of Anglo-Saxons to each. Joe was unfortunately placed in Mr. Williams' watch. I was in the mate's, under the eye of my evil genius, the boatswain. He was my roommate below and my master on deck. Indeed, my only relief from his presence was when he was snoring in his bunk. After a few watches below, I became accustomed to the rasping noise of his nasal organ and could fall asleep. But I cursed the luck which put me in his room. Far easier would my lot have been in the forecastle. I was told never to mingle with the men forward, except when on duty. As I wanted to know more about the crew, I would watch my opportunity to steal forward, listen to their yarns, and become better acquainted. Different ships, different fashions, as Paddy said, when he roved the foresheet through the lee scupper. On my other trips I had been in the forecastle and envied the after end. Now I was between the two and would have changed to either gladly. On the other ships my stay had been so short that I had taken little interest in the crew, but now, unless some accident should befall me, I was in for a year's voyage. I should cross the line four times round the cape twice and be a seasoned deep-water sailor on my return although we had signed the articles with its scale of provisions we were not confined to that old wilson could make a dish of anything he was kind-hearted and took a delight in seeing the men satisfied as long as the potatoes lasted we had a portion duff twice a week, and canned beef on Sundays. No one complained while Wilson was alive. 
In the Gulf Stream we encountered a gale which kept us hove to under reef topsails and foresail for four days. The fore topsail was well worn. As it felt the force of the gale, it started at the head and whipped itself into ribbons. All that was saved were the pieces that had wrapped themselves around the mast and topmost rigging. The seas flooded the deck, and some of our water casks were washed from their lashings and swept over the rail. Though it was no easy matter to haul a topsail along the deck and get it aloft at such a time, yet we did it. There was a suit of sails in the lazarette. A topsail was hauled up, taken into the forward cabin, spread out, and reefed ready for bending. Head and reef earrings, rovings, and clues clear, we tugged the long roll of canvas on our shoulders, sliding from side to side till we got it forward. Then, bending on the end of the gantline, which had been rove for this purpose, we hoisted it aloft, up aft the yards, guying it out to windward. The mate remained on deck to slack away, while both watches, with Mr. Williams and the boatswain, bent and reefed it. The heat of the lazarette and the work of hauling the topsail caused the perspiration to flow freely. Oilskins were discarded, and we were wet through with the salt spray. Before we started aloft, a roaming wave left its turbulent head on our deck, and for a moment it seemed as though we were in the surf at a seaside resort. Up we went, dripping wet, and mounted the rocking horse. Jack was next to me. Together we passed the weather earring and shouted, Haul out to lowered! Oh, how delightful! Seated on the yard arm, I could see the heavy seas tumble against the ship, the running rigging flying loose and curving like coach whips. The whole scene aloft and below was wild and awe-inspiring. We were fully four hours bending the topsail. During this time the men were grinding away on their tobacco. Those on the lee yard arm could enjoy their weed, they could let fly the juice and watch it safely pass to leeward. Not so with us on the weather yard arm. We must watch our opportunity to spit in the sail when Mr. Williams was not looking, or we might bend our heads under the yard and hope a backdraft would not lift it to windward and drive it into some fellow's face. A spatter of tobacco juice fell full on the second mate's face. Immediately he opened his dictionary and put his vocabulary to use. Now most seafaring men use tobacco. I suppose they would chew less if they were allowed to smoke when they felt like it, but it is a great breach of discipline for a sailor to smoke while working so they form the chewing habit which they can indulge in while on deck. No greater blessing is bestowed on a sailor than his pipe. It makes him forget his cares, 
breaks the humdrum monotony keeps him from mischief and helps him build castles in the air why then deprive him of it i know there are times when it is inconvenient to have a pipe in one's mouth but is it any more disrespectful or will it lessen ship discipline any more than having a mouthful of the weed i think not the best-natured seaman becomes a grumbler when in need of tobacco and a ship short of it is a very uncomfortable place in which to dwell i have seen old salts dry their old chews and smoke them yes smoke dried coffee grounds and tea leaves after the gale a few rousing shanties made the work of spreading the muslin an easy matter and we were by the wind in the northeast trades many people think sailors have nothing to do but watch the ship sail along except in stormy weather when they are forced to work the sails can a housekeeper find work to do in a home which is properly looked after so in a ship no matter how long the voyage may be there is always some work to be done what with cleaning paintwork preserving the rigging from being chafed scraping the bright woodwork and pounding iron rust a good mate is never in need of something for his men to do watch and watch we were kept busy doing things both necessary and unnecessary at night as the men came on deck both watches mustered aft and were counted by the boatswain relieve the wheel and look out and keep on your pegs by the main hatch there were many nights when the watch on deck could have dozed on the main hatch with perfect safety but no it meant the loss of an afternoon's watch below to be caught napping while on deck portuguese joe found it a hard matter to keep awake on a fine night mr williams caught him napping and made him take the canvas draw bucket haul water and throw it over himself could he have resented yes he did but the greaser was too much for him why didn't the other men help him they knew it was best not to kick against the supreme authority of the after end least said soonest mended is a safe motto aboard a ship as there is no unity in so mixed a crowd i grew fat on the kicks of the boatswain rousing me from stolen naps on deck somehow the more i tried to keep awake the more drowsy did i become the one method used by the boatswain which kept me awake was to break the stops of the bunt lines and to glory in his spite while i was climbing from yard to yard overhauling and stopping them again our yards were painted black scrapers were made from old knives the grindstone brought on deck and every man called on to use his sheath knife to scrape the paint from them as soon as the watch came on deck it was 
perch yourself aloft and get at the scraping this work lasted for several weeks the ordinary scraping of mast and yards is tiresome but to remove a thick coat of paint from a pitch pine stick is tedious and wearisome to the fullest extent even when the paint is off there must be another scraping to make it bright and clean for days and days we were by the wind when we entered the trades great was the old man's disgust driven to the southward and westward we edged along to the brazilian coast the compass might have been over the side for all the use it was to be at the man at the wheel our guide was the clue of the mizzen royal the yards braced sharp up the course was full and by at the close of the two hours trick at the wheel my neck would be stiff from the constant upward gaze at the sail when we drew near the equator the scraping had to be stopped the trade wind squalls were frequent and severe and gave us a steady drill in taking in the light sails and settling them again with the squall there came a downpour of rain so that we filled our cask from the water falling from the roof of the cabin though the scuppers were free still it poured upon us faster than it could leave the deck leaving us ankle-deep in rainwater hardly a breath of air stirring the force of the squall passed and over our heads the sails flapped against the mast as the ship rolled the wash of the water tumbling from side to side felt as though we were standing in the stream of a fast-flowing river this was a tropical shower it seemed as if the ocean were over us and the bottom had fallen out water spouts were visible at the horizon these dangerous funnel-shaped black clouds emptied themselves upon us two of the monsters crossed our bows less than half a mile away we could see the whirlpool and upheaval of the water as they swept along trailing their tapering stem filling the mighty reservoir above our old man was grumbling and discontented we were now nearing the close of our second month and had barely crossed the line but a change came and we bowled along full and by through the horse latitudes with a stiff southeast trade wind the work of scraping was resumed while on the fore topsail yard i noticed what seemed to be a black cloud to leeward which i concluded to be land i shouted land ho where away shouted the boatswain about two points on the lee bow the old man hearing the shout came on deck he was frantic when he saw the mountain peaked church steeple island of fernando noronha blocking his headway it was ready about and beat our way clear of land the chronometer was out 
as the previous day's reckoning had made the ship one hundred and sixty miles to the east of this brazilian convict island we kept twenty-four hours on the starboard tack which enabled us to weather it still there was an uncertainty which worried captain thomas he was not sure of weathering cap st roch keeping the yards pointed sharp to the wind we cleared the cape and bowled along to the southward one afternoon we were surrounded by a school of bonitos these creatures feed upon flying fish and squid and delight to follow a ship gambling around her bows and darting in and out around the cutwater the mate was soon seated on the jib boom end with a line and gunny sack ready to haul them in we were sailing fast which aided him in his fishing with a bit of white rag on his hook the line curved out by the force of the wind dragging well to leeward mr parker kept us busy passing in the bonitos and dumping them on deck our headway was too swift for the bonitos to study the appearance of the bait so as it skimmed along on the crest of the water they would think it a flying fish and nab it although not large i suppose about eighteen inches long and weighing up from twenty to thirty pounds it took a skilled man to haul them up to the boom it was a splendid pastime of feverish excitement standing on the forecastle head we could feel the ship tremble with the jerking of the fish on the line the forward end of the ship was besmeared with blood we didn't mind that for the fun was immense and the expectation of a feed of fried fish fully compensated for the work of washing down that evening old wilson cooked enough bonitos to satisfy all hands and a delightful meal it was next morning our disappointment was great when our breakfast was the usual lobscouse we had pickled a barrel of the fish but in that moist atmosphere they did not take the brine they were putrid filled with maggots and had to be tossed over the side the day came at last when we could check in our yards with a fair wind from the westward we steered a course to the southward and eastward as we crept along south the wind gradually increased we sighted the towering mass of tristan de cuna far above the clouds here the ocean was covered with long patches of kelp and their cable-like stems heaving in the restless sea made the rolling waves look like the furrows of a newly ploughed field here the westerly wind gathered in force and volume and settled into a gale which lasted quite as long as we wanted it for three weeks we ran before it with square yards till we reached the island of st paul i suppose it is blowing a westerly gale there now there was no let-up we sailed out of it when we shaped our course to the northward from st paul 
Day and night we ran our longitude down under our topsails and foresail, covering between two hundred and fifty and three hundred miles each day, spreading the snowy foam before her bows like an open sheet, she glided fish-like through the sea. When abreast of the cape, it seemed as if the old gal would roll herself over, for burying the rail at each roll, she scooped up the sea and flooded the decks. It was dangerous as well as uncomfortable to get forward or aft. One had to await a favorable opportunity and then wade through the foaming lather. At times a heavy rolling sea would overtake us and dash on our poop deck. We managed to get some of the cases of oil from the forehatch. Piercing holes in the cans, we hung them over the taffrail where the oil might drip in her boiling wake. In the hollows of the waves, the albatross and cape pigeons could be seen. Disturbed by us in our mad rush, up they would fly to return to rest again after we had passed. One morning I went below at four o'clock. The port watch had the eight hours in. I found the boatswain's room afloat. A sea had rolled in, and the wash of the water was making havoc of everything except the bed in the top bunk. My clothes and bed were wet. The boatswain turned in and left me to clear up the wreck. I sneaked forward to the forecastle and climbed into a top bunk belonging to Peter, one of the Norwegians. I must have been asleep about an hour when I felt a wet hand on my ankle, and without a word of warning I was dragged from the bunk and kicked and cuffed by the second mate till I reached the cabin door. Opening the door of his room, he told me to use his bed rather than one in the forecastle. Don't you ever let me catch you there. If your bed is wet, use mine. Between the rolls of the ship, old Wilson waited aft and invited me forward to his room, which was partitioned off from the galley, where I was soon fast asleep between his warm, comfortable blankets. Then this kind-hearted negro mopped up the boatswain's room and hung my wet clothes by his galley fire to dry. For several days we had been drinking the vilest kind of water. We had not yet opened the iron tank between decks, and the casks were filled with rainwater, which had become putrid, alive with animal matter, and emitted a disgusting odor. The men complained, and the big tank was tapped for our use. Rainwater, when barreled up, will become rotten, but after some time will regain its freshness and be excellent for drinking. It will rot twice over, and each time it is sweeter for the change. While undergoing this process, it will breed swarms of mosquitoes. Each day to the northward brought us into better weather. The sunshine and warmth gave us new life and energy. Our clothes were white, 
and the decks and rigging were bleached with salt. In two weeks we had forgotten all about the gales of the southern latitudes, and were basking in the tropical sun in sight of Sandalwood Island. We were now sailing through miles of floating pumice stone, which had been ejected from the volcanic islands in the Indian Ocean. Worse luck for us. The mate had us scoop up fully half a ton, and between the squalls of the trades and the bad weather in the China Sea, we were ever pumice-stoning the paintwork. Although Barbados is known as the only regular flying fishery in the world, I think the natives of Sandalwood Island might compete with them. I have seen swarms of these fish flying from the jaws of the dolphin and bonito, but never so numerous as they were here. The flying fish leaves the water with such force that with one prolonged leap it skims and skips along the surface. I have seen it stated that they do not fly. My native fishermen say they do. I have seen a swarm headed for our ship, and as they drew near they have turned at right ankles out of the way. In Barbados the natives live on flying fish six months of the year. I have seen the market filled with them, and at a late hour in the evening they are sold fifty for a penny, although usually the price is a penny for two or three. Ice is a scarce luxury, and as the fish will not keep till the next day, the negro fisherman gladly disposes of them for any sum. A half-dozen fish will make a hearty meal for a fair-sized family. The fishermen start out at dawn and reach the grounds before the sun is high. With mast unstepped, they cast decayed fish overboard, and while the flying fish are feeding, they scoop them in with circular nets of small mesh stretched on wooden hoops. The largest kind, the guinea man, are caught with hook and line. Occasionally, at night, a flying fish will fly on board in the tropics. Once, as punishment for sleeping during my watch on deck, I had to spend an afternoon's watch below over the side in a bowline, scraping the scales and brains of the flying fish from the black-painted side of the ship. Often I have watched them skim through the air, skip along for about two hundred yards, and then seen the splash of the dolphin that had traveled as fast as they and was ready to receive them. Then making another leap, Away they would dart, only dropping when the drying of the wing membrane compelled them. Within a week after sinking sandalwood, we raised the island of Timor. The space between these two islands must be the home of the porpoise. All day in their clownish fashion, they rolled and tumbled around the bow. A snatch block was hung at the end of the bowsprit, a line rove through it and then bent on to the harpoon. At first the mate did the harpooning, but soon grew tired of it. 
with a strap securing him to the martingale a man would stand on the back ropes and with harpoon ready await the opportunity to stick them in a little while the harpoon would be raised the point following the track of a rising porpoise till its back was clear of the water then the iron fell and hand over hand we lifted the struggling pig to the boom then bending on a rope's end we hauled him on board as another man slacked away on the harpoon line many times we hauled these kicking trembling sea pigs on deck occasionally a porpoise would tear himself from the harpoon and fall back into the sea streaming with blood i am told that the others chase and devour him in his weakness this may be so but it is a fact that when a wounded porpoise falls from a harpoon the whole school disappears for a time the blubber was boiled and we all had oil enough to grease our sea boots chips had what he wanted to oil his tools and some to spare for the donkey engine the beef was fine we cut it in flakes and spread it out in the sun to dry it was a treat after being at sea so long to have so plentiful a supply of fresh meat several days after the dried meat made a delicious a dish as one could desire the longer it is kept unlike any other fish the more tender and sweet it becomes any man even though it was his watch on deck was allowed to pin a porpoise as when they were on board the harness cask was kept locked and unused we passed timor and entered the gilolo passage for days we were becalmed surrounded on all sides by islands for over a month we tried to get through into the open pacific the old man grew impatient and irritable his only relief was to keep box hauling the yards around and trying to make a breeze where there was none it was a continual haul on this and take a drag on the other thing every effort was made to take advantage of the least puff of wind we had been told these islands were inhabited by cannibals one afternoon a canoe full of black natives paddled to us they came shouting and bawling the outrigger of the dugout trailing in the water and stopped about fifty feet away the old man had his rifle the mate a revolver while we were armed with knives to defend ourselves but instead of coming to eat us as we had supposed they had shells and matted material to exchange for tobacco the captain had to coax them to come alongside hideous-looking mortals they were naked and with skins streaked and rough like alligators where the sun had dried the salt water on them they would not come on board but holding on to a rope's end showed us their curiosities and shouted tobac tobac mr parker descended to the canoe and in exchange for a few pounds of tobacco emptied it of its contents the ship's slop chest was stocked with high-priced dog's wool and oakum clothing soap matches and tobacco every article costing about twice its market value 
Now tobacco was a dollar and a half a pound, yet this high price did not hinder us from negotiating with the blacks for their useless curiosities. A light breeze was carrying us along about four knots, so the mate climbed up the rope ladder and the blacks paddled for their native soil. While sailing between these islands, we caught several large albacores, weighing between fifty and sixty pounds each. We salted and hung them under the boat skids. They were good eating, but where they were hung to dry, the full moon shone on them. A few days after, we had albacore for dinner. I ate heartily, and within an hour was suffering with a violent headache. For over twenty-four hours after that I was unconscious. My head was swollen. When I regained consciousness, I learned that, like myself, half of the crew had been poisoned by the fish. The full moon of the tropics makes the night almost as bright as day. I remember reading Barnaby Rudge by moonlight during my watch on deck. Men dare not sleep in its glare, for it will distort the features and blind the eyes, so powerful is its light. That experience guarded me more than once. Not only was I careful after that never to hang fish or meat where the moon could shine on it, but I also was sure to keep my face covered when stealing a nap on a moonlit deck. End of chapter 10